This episode is brought to you by Harry's.com, where you can get high-quality shaving products for about half the price of name-brand razors. Get $5 off your first order when you use the promo code BEST. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Jimmy Dore Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, Counterspin, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Activism from Best of the Left, and a TED Talk by Noah Blumenthal. I don't know if you heard, but uh, ISIS, they're beheading a lot of foreign journalists, right, in an attempt to terrorize us, to make us crazy and uh, start to make decisions out of fear, right? That's what terrorism is. They want you to make decisions out of fear, which is the worst place to make decisions. Turns out Chris Hardball has been freaking out over this, just like the terrorists want him to. And uh, he had a guy on. Here's what he's talking about. He can't get over. Well, here, let's, let's listen yes, to him. And what do you do to stop the beheadings? That's, uh... He's like, what do we do to stop the beheadings? The guy tells him, can't do anything. You can't. Well, you mean you this can't. president's going to sit there in the Oval Office and go to bed every night knowing that the next day, the next Wednesday, the next whatever, there's going to be another beheading? He's this side. How do you stop them from doing what they're doing is my question. Is there no way to stop them? Chris, again, this is a bad thing that they behead a journalist, uh, you know, but this is this is exactly what they want you to. We got to stop that. What do we do? How do we got to be? You can't you can't you, you don't do you don't stop. So 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 now he just starts to cra start crapping his pants for absolutely no reason. He starts making up other crazy scenarios like what if they start grabbing hikers? Listen to what he says. But, but that's not the problem. There's all kinds of journalists. There's probably missionaries over there strangling hikers. There's a lot of Americans. They they can get their hands on. It's, what it's, is he talking about? There's a lot of there's a lot of missionaries over there. They're strangling hikers. What is he talking about? Are He's the missionaries before, strangling before. the hikers? People are not letting um, the whole uh, turmoil in the Mideast stop their uh, hiking trip. <laughs> stop their what? Their hiking trip. Yes, people are still hiking over in the borderless region of Syria and Iraq. <laughs> people are still, there's a lot of good land up there to hike. You get a good hike yeah. in. So he, camping territory. Uh, and you can, you can, you got a nice hike in and then there's like a Starbucks at the end of the trail mm. and you can sit down and kick back. And Chris Matthews thinks we should go to war to to protect all the hikers. <laughs> That's what this is about. So this guy, so now the guy lays out the reality of the situation in a very sober, dispassionate tone, uh, the kind we need here, and listen to what... True, but this is this broader problem with kidnapping, and, and what's our response to kidnapping? European governments pay huge ransoms, up to $10 million per, you know, per prisoner. You, uh, the U.S. and the Brits, we don't pay these ransoms. Okay, so that's what, that's the deal. The European yeah. countries pay ransom to these guys when they kidnap people, the United States, we decided we don't do that. We don't negotiate with terrorists. We're not going to give you a ransom. So that this is what happens. And if you're a journalist in a war area with terrorists like this, this is the chance you take. So here's, and now watch, so that's pretty dispassionate. That's pretty real, right? That's a guy giving you some sober analysis of the situation. Here's Chris Matthews. We seem to accept that if you fall into this situation, you know, you well, may let me die. Uh, yeah, here's I don't know if you're getting at my point. There's a nationalistic reaction. This country's been attacked. It's not a criminal act by one group of people against a couple of our people. It's an attack on our country. How can the president stop this attack on our country, this humiliation, this taunting of him and our country by beheading people on national, international television? They're sending us pictures of this. 
Chris, if you could freak out more about people sending the pictures of the behind, I'd like to see it. I mean, could he be more out of his mind right now? You know, Jimmy, in response to the beheadings, the only person who talks like he doesn't have a head is Chris Matthews. Yes, yes, exactly right. Very well put. I just don't understand why he keeps saying that he's being humiliated. 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 Exactly. That's a good point, Steph. That's why I originally got this clip, because he keeps saying, we're being humiliated. What? We're not. I'm not humiliated. You know. So his point is, let's uh, let's go in and bomb them and kill a lot of innocent people, and that'll mm. that'll, that'll save face. Because we're being humiliated. Yeah. Because we're. I, I don't feel humiliated. Do you feel humiliated, Frank? I no. I mean, I feel. I just feel that uh, this group is is evil and they're doing a horrible thing. But as we learned ten years ago, the answer is not to invade the country and start a war. That just makes things worse. Right. The fact right. that Obama might be thinking about things and trying to figure out what the best thing to do is and that it's going to take a little time, I'm more reassured by that than if he was just doing what John McCain and Chris Matthews wanted him to do. Well, let's go to some more sober analysis. Here's John McCain, and I'm going to play his introduction, too. He was on, I think, with Megyn Kelly. He was on Fox News. Uh And so just listen. She introduces him, and here we go. It's going to be fun. Senator John McCain joins us. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Um, ISIS, what are we going to do about it? Kill him. Okay, there you go. <laughs> wow, that's that kind of sober, rational, thought-out kind of strategy I was looking for from an ex-veteran who's been wrong about every foreign policy that decision was, uh, in his life. That was really in-depth, and I look forward to seeing John McCain on Duck Dynasty. <laughs> <laughs> Here, So he's out with Greta Van Susteren. Let's hear it again. Here it comes one more time. Ready? And Senator John McCain joins us. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Um, ISIS, what are we going to do about it? Kill him. <laughs> I can't believe that he didn't win the presidency. No kidding. I really regret not voting for him. Yeah, I can't believe. That's what we need, another guy who just makes knee-jerk reactions from the gut about invading other countries. Good for him, huh? Because that didn't get us into a bad pickle. Oh, except this is the pickle we got in because of that stuff. And there's and never been a war that John McCain hasn't been interested in going to. Go ahead. And if you're if you're concerned with the safety of the world and you want... Uh, an intelligent perspective on how to make the world safe. Mm-hmm. Why would you bring in the man who thought that Sarah Palin was qualified to be president <laughs> of the United States? Yeah, this was the guy who said, hey, if, if I can't do it, please, let Sarah Palin run the country. Yes. Let's and, yet, and, yet, and yet he's on every TV show to this day. Every TV show wants his opinion. Going to be, uh, next week he's even going to be on a new show, America Has Got Hubris. <laughs> All the imps and demons put on their Sunday best When it was plain that John McCain would be the honored guest Don't you know he'd be the honored guest? To our home in Hades We hear you send the men to war And prostitute the ladies Hi-ho, bail out the banks Middle class, goodbye Your image is a maverick Your image is a lie Good going, we're growing Just knowing that your image is a lie 
Wong is on the line with us, investigative reporter for The Nation and The Republic Report, republicreport.com, thenation.com. And Lee, welcome. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. It is always great having you on the program. You've been doing some amazing reporting on the... Um, on the generals, on the generals who are informing us on television, do I have that right? That's right, Tom. Uh, in a story we posted last Friday, uh, we took a look at some of the most prominent pundits who are calling for a military solution uh, to the ISIS issue. Um, most of these folks that we uh, we reported on are former generals, and they're introduced when they talk about these issues in the media as only former generals or current think tank heads. Um, what hasn't been disclosed or acknowledged uh, when these folks have gone on the media is their current positions in the defense contracting world. Many of these individuals are highly paid board members, advisors, or employees of defense contractors uh, that would benefit from many of the policies uh, that these individuals are pushing. And these are names like Anthony Zinni, for example? Uh, that's right. Anthony Zinni, uh, Jack Keane. Um, uh, Jim Mattis, uh, these are former generals that have been quoted in the print media uh, or have gone on television uh, saying that we need to deploy um, thousands of American soldiers to the region, uh, that we need to arm various militant groups or governments in that region, that we generally need to step up uh, with a military response of, of, of bombing and supplying more weapons to the region. Why does the media put these guys on without any disclosure of their agenda? Well, that's a good question, Tom. You know, I, I did my story building on the really great reporting of uh, the New York Times in 2008. Uh, the Nation had a story uh, several years ago. Kevin Connor, uh, the really fabulous researcher. A lot of folks have actually looked into this issue and shown that um, for years, uh, going back to the Iraq War and maybe even uh, before that, uh, major media outlets have brought on um, former generals, military folks, and re refused to disclose uh, their military contracting ties. So this is not a new issue. This is an ongoing issue. The networks uh, know about it, um, but they've refused to uh, uh, disclose or identify uh, some of these potential conflicts of interest. Yeah. Um, what does this mean for policy in the United States? To what extent have they been successful in influencing policy? Well, let's just talk about one of the folks we reported on, uh, Jack Keane. He's a former general, former advisor to General Petraeus. Uh, he's the Fox News military analyst. He's been going on uh, primetime television almost every night in the last week and um, fairly frequently in the last two months talking about a robust military solution for a very complicated political and sectarian issue. Um, and, you know, he's a board member to General Dynamics. They make airplanes and tanks, tanks that are sold to Saudi Arabia and Iraq. He's a, a, a venture partner at a, a, a VC firm that invests in defense companies. He has his own consulting firm. And he's also adv an advisor to the company formerly known as Blackwater. So he has a lot of skin in the game, but he's going on television to a primetime audience. And remember, Fox News is much bigger than CNN or MSNBC. They have over 4 million primetime viewers. So he's talking to a large audience, and in many cases, he's the only um, military expert brought on to talk about these issues. So it, it's really a disservice to the viewer that they're only getting one point of view, and that that point of view is severely conflicted. There is, to the best of my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, there are no businesses that are highly profitable, particularly with government contracts, 
that could afford to throw a quarter million dollars or a half million dollars or a million dollars a year at some former general to advocate peace, are there? That's, you know, that's a great point because, you know, you look at some of the largest public policy debates in America, um, they're often determined by figuring out where you can line up money on either side. You know, the climate change debate, um, at, at least in 2009, 2010, when there's a chance of a bill in Congress, uh, Democrats relied on money from the renewable energy industry. There was money to push, push back against fossil fuel interests. But here for these foreign policy debates, it's really a one-sided debate because you know the, the the civilians who could be killed in an in a in a bombing campaign. You know, and, and some of these other stakeholders in this debate, they don't have a voice. They don't have a lobby. They don't have um, uh, money to influence politics or or public um, public opinion. So you know, um, in a money-driven system, folks who have the resources, in this case, defense contractors, have the loudest voice. I'm your masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls. Here that hide behind discs. I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks. You that never done nothing But build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy Now we've talked about how President Obama uh, is now relying on Bush administration officials for his rationale on declaring war on ISIS and in the meanwhile uh, going to war uh, and bombing all over the Middle East in several different countries. We've talked about uh, the potential presidential nominee in 2016 for the Democrats being even more hawkish and more pro-war than President Obama. That's Hillary Clinton. Um, now, this sounds just like uh, 2003 all over again because we've got uh, the party in power pushing for war. We've got uh, Democrats who can't wait to agree with that because in this case, it is a Democratic president. Republicans, of course, agree even more so. John McCain's on TV every day saying, kill them all, kill them all. Uh, Michelle Bachman today is talking about how ISIS is Hitler. We have to go to war right away. Though, what's the only missing element? The media. Now, back in 2003, they all helped the rush for to war. Uh, and you had all the Judy Miller stories in the front page of the New York Times saying, oh my God, mushroom clouds, uh, they've got all these weapons and they could be nuclear weapons and they could use them. It's a nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. New York Times takes the articles about how they don't really have any kind of nuclear weapons, let alone any weapons of mass destruction, let alone any links to 9-11 or Al-Qaeda, and buries it in page 827. Now that's the New York Times. MSNBC at the time run by conservatives. Uh, fires everyone on air, Phil Donahue, Jesse Ventura, Ashley Banfield gets put in a closet, literally, uh, that says the Iraq war might be a mistake. Okay, so they're all goners. And everybody on TV starts waving the flag. In this case, it's happening even quicker. So now the media, who told us all these times, we have learned our lesson from Iraq, we're not going to do that again. Well, here they come doing the same exact thing. First, we start with Chuck Todd, but turn on any channel you want now. You turn on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, they're all saying the same thing. Here's Chuck Todd talking about how weak the president is if he doesn't act. 
So it's not just him, it actually is impacting the entire Democratic Party. The, we did some uh, issue testing between, you know, who better handles which issues, Democrats or Republicans, took out Obama. Republicans lead by 38 points on the issue of ensuring a strong national defense. Oh my God. 38. I, this that, is, that's he's he's on the precipice of doing Jimmy Carter-like damage to the Democratic brand and foreign policy. Now, look, that poll is devastating. I think President Obama exudes weakness, not because he didn't do more bombings and more war, but because he comes out and he's like, I don't know, who should I follow? Should I follow the Republicans? They're telling me to do bombing. Okay, I guess I'll do bombing. He looks so sad out there. That's why they think this guy's not strong, not because of the policy, but because of the way he follows the Republicans and Fox News no matter what they say. It looks pathetic, right? So I don't mind him quoting the poll, but then he adds on there. Starting to look like Jimmy Carter. Now, by the way, who's the only president in our lifetimes who's gotten peace in the Middle East? Oh, right, Jimmy Carter. You wouldn't want to look like that guy, okay? Oh, yeah. In Washington, the name Jimmy Carter is toxic. Like, <laughs> Jimmy Carter, yeah, that guy was weak. He got peace. War, we need war. Obama, no, you know, if you don't want to look like Jimmy Carter, you might want to act here and act with uh, more bombings and more war. All right, so that's uh, MSNBC over there. Remember, they're supposed to be the liberal channel. That was a show hosted by a former Republican congressman who's massively conservative with a guest who's now the head of Meet the Press who's saying you're going to look like Jimmy Carter if you don't attack. Okay, now let's go to Fox News. That's supposed to be the conservative channel, and they are. Uh, many funny things said here by uh, their analyst, Peter Johnson. You know, we may witness the rebirth of a new President Obama tonight. Maybe the uh, adopted brother of George Bush, born of the ashes of Ground Zero. And so, in choosing the eve of 9-11, the anniversary of 9-11, is he unabashedly now wrapping himself in the American flag, in the same flag that he has skewed? You know, back in 2007, he said he wouldn't wear an American flag pin. Uh, he's cast off his own history in terms of terrorism, and perhaps this is a new President Obama, inspired by one too many nightmares of a city in flames, triggered by one too many intelligence briefings that he's probably getting about the threat of ISIS in Iraq, Syria, and maybe here in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, or any city in America. The more relevant point in this case is, here's Peter Johnson from Fox News giving Obama a pat on the head. Good job. You're the adopted brother of George Bush now. You see, now you might be learning that, every, like, just like we told you, every city in America, Chicago, New York, has said it's going to be on fire, that ISIS is somehow magically going to attack us when they, by the way, before we bombed them, had never attacked us. They didn't even do 9-11. Al-Qaeda did 9-11. You want to go after Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan? I agreed with that. They weren't in Iraq. But in this case, ISIS didn't even attack us. We bombed first, then they killed two of our reporters, which enrages me, and they're a horrible, horrible, horrible group. The question is, what do you do about him? Here he says, oh my God, if you don't want Chicago and New York on fire, you're gonna have to attack. And it looks like he's gonna attack and declare more war. Fox News approves for a day or so until they turn on you. But right now, in the lead up to war, ooh, good job, Obama, good job, good job. And now here comes Chris Matthews. They want a strategy that doesn't include any casualties at home, in the homeland, uh, that ominous phrase, or any casualties overseas, or any engagement on the ground. What kind of a war is this? No casualties, no fighting on the ground, but we win. How do you fight a war like that? And what, what, who's, what dreamland is that that they're talking about? And I think they are people that hate us probably more than we hate them. 
And so they're going to keep fighting. And if we raise the stakes and put in more air power against them, they're going to raise the stakes. And they may attack us here at home. It's all part of the real world we live in. The world we don't live in is a world of total security at home, no ground engagement overseas, no involvement in Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan. We get out completely, but somehow we stay in and win an air battle or with drones. Again, you can't win a war that immaculately. You've got to get your hands dirty and you've got to take casualties. That's reality. I hope the president brings that to the American people's attention tonight. That A war is a war. And people get hurt and they get killed. And any other kind of war is illusory, I think. I got an idea about who's illusory. Um, all right. So first of all, if he says, "Look, it's unrealistic to do a war uh, with no ground troops, etc." as he just did, that part I have no problems with, and I agree with. But the other parts where he adds in, "Now, look, uh, they hate us more than we hate them." Well, they were busy fighting a war in Syria and Iraq in despicable ways. But they weren't busy attacking us. We started attacking them. I'm not saying we're at fault. Okay, I hate the guys. I love that we uh, bombed them in the case of Mount Sinjar when we rescued the Yazidi. But I would have drawn the line there. That was to prevent genocide. Okay. Other than that, they didn't attack us until they we started bombing them on mass scale. Then they kill our journalists. They might have killed the journalists anyway. I don't trust them at all. Okay. But for us to turn around now and say they hate us so much. But they had nothing to do with us. This is exactly what the libertarians talk about all the time. Until we became the police force, and there are upsides to being the world's police force. I hate ISIS. If we could actually get rid of them in a clean way, again, that's fairyland. Okay, I don't think that we can do that, and that's part of the problem. But if we could, and I could push a button, I'd do it today, right? But the problem is once we get involved, it gets messy. So that's part of Chris Matthews' point. The other part, though, is they hate us, so we got to take action. And you got to get your hands dirty. You got to get your hands dirty. You got to take some casualties. It, it isn't enough to just bomb them. We need ground troops. Let's rush in a war. Let's rush in a war. Let's get casualties. Let's get our hands dirty. Now, I remember Chris Matthews saying this uh, in another instance before another war uh, or during another war. Let's take a look at that. Probably the greatest gamble since Roosevelt backed Britain before World War II. The president deserves credit. This gamble comes through, and it's not clear yet. If his gamble that he can create a democracy in the middle of the Arab world and he does it, he belongs on Mount Rushmore. That was before the Iraqi elections, and if you remember the purple ink on everybody's fingers, the elections went off smoothly, and they came out and said that was a success. So according to Chris Matthews' metric, in the middle of a disastrous war in Iraq, George Bush belonged on Mount Rushmore for the decision to invade Iraq. Now, of course, later, Chris Matthews would turn around and go, what, me? I was never for the Iraq war. Watch. It's Frank's essential thesis that they sold us this bill of, bill of goods, the administration did, you know, uh, Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, all of them, about the Iraq war, and you and the rest of the media went along with them, were like, like enablers with an alcoholic. No, 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 Don, Don, no. Don. Uh, you can check everything. Get your Nexus Lexus out. Get your Google out. Get your co every column I've written from the day they started talking about Iraq has been against it. Now you're chuckling because you know damn well you pulled my chain here. I have been a voice out there against this bullshit war from the beginning. Oh, from the beginning. Right after I said we should put Bush on Mount Rushmore for that same war. And here comes Chris Matthews talking about getting your hands dirty, taking casualties. And later he will turn around and all the same press will turn around and say, what, us? 
No, we were against it from the beginning. I can't believe Obama went in there and he didn't even ask Congress. Wait for it, because it's going to happen. Amazingly, the one voice uh, against all this is Brian Stelter at CNN, who's saying, eh, I wonder if uh, we're, the media is pushing uh, President Obama towards further escalation. Wonder no more. They most certainly are. Harry's.com basically embodies everything good I look for in a company. First of all, their shaving products are first rate, by which I mean that their blades actually give the best shave I've ever had. And aside from that, the entire experience of purchasing their products is actually pleasant. For starters, everything they sell feels like you're paying what the item is actually worth and not some crazy marked up price that makes you feel like you're being taken advantage of. In fact, their blades are about half the price of their name brand competitors. They have a couple new products that just came out, foaming gel, which I've been waiting for, that's my style, and a new aftershave moisturizer. So now a $15 starter kit, which you can actually get a $5 discount on by using the offer code BEST at checkout, comes with three blades, a razor handle of your choice, which is very stylish, and your choice of either foaming gel or their classic shave cream, which is a pretty unbeatable deal. And finally, something I am sure you'll like but definitely not expect is one specific instance of their attention to detail. I was surprised and delighted the first time I opened my Harry's mailer where I found a logo on the package that is both adorable and clever. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is because I couldn't do it justice. I mean, this is radio. So what you're just going to have to do is go to harrys.com and look for the little box that the blades come shipped in and you'll see the adorable, clever logo. You'll see what I mean. You'll be glad you did. Then once you're there and you've realized that you can't think of any good reason to not go ahead and give them a try, pick out a starter kit of your choice and then use the offer code BEST during checkout to save yourself five bucks and let them know that you're supporting this show at the same time. So what we've got here is an incredibly complicated constitutional conundrum, what James Madison in Federalist 51 referred to as a total pig <laughs> Which branch of government has the power to take us to war? Is this even a war at all? And if it isn't a war, then what is it? Now is the time for an adult conversation about how our government makes its most important decisions and functions in crisis. And to lead that discussion, I give you our national media. President Obama's so-called latte salute. Holding a cup in his right hand. The great coffee escapade. Coffee gate. President Obama in hot water. Some people think it was disrespectful. Hashtag latte salute. The coffee salute went viral. The lot is uh, blowing up online. We are so <laughs> I don't even know what to do. First of all, we're currently fighting, if I may say... So apparently we're currently fighting ISIS and Ebola, two things that are literally blowing up and going viral. So if you're not going to cover the important stuff, at least don't use words that remind us of the important stuff you're not covering. Okay. Now, to be fair, Latte Gate wasn't all the news talked about yesterday, but where I might have given the president salutes with coffee cup story an espresso-sized shot of attention, the news channels went for the full double venti coverage with one network going especially deep. Learn the proper respect right. of the salute. It's insensitive. What's the meaning of it? That's it. It looks terrible. It's outlandish, and it's disappointing. Put your coffee in the other hand. Our commander-in-chief displayed his complete disrespect for the men and women in uniform. Shut up! <laughs> you don't really care. You don't really care about this. 
You, there, you have no principle about this. You're just trying to score points in a game that no one else is playing. Here's how we know. It's an arrogance that he portrays. These people are put their lives on the line for us. You're right. Show the respect and salute these, these guys. So the principle here is show respect for the people who are putting their lives on the line for this fight. Here's Eric Bowling on that very same episode. The first female pilot piloting for the UAE dropped the bombs on ISIS on Monday night. Would that be considered boobs on the ground or no? First of all, forget the rampant sexism in that statement. Second of all, she's a pilot, so whatever gender-specific equipment she might be carrying is in the air. And thirdly, what was the quote that someone said earlier in your program? These people are putting their lives on the line for us. Show respect. So f*** you and all your false patriotism. When Bush took us to war, any criticism was shouted down as treasonous. When Bush took us to war, any criticism was shouted down as treasonous. But a president you don't like has the country poised on the same precipice? No transgression, no matter how immaterial and ridiculous, is too small to cite as evidence that this president isn't as American as you are. You want a hot cup of cognitive dissonance? Watch this. Would President Bush ever do that? Yeah, are we, are we surprised? For, I mean, after all, we've got a chai-swilling, golf-playing, basketball-trash-talking, uh, leading from behind, I got no strategy, uh, Osama bin Laden is dead, GM is alive, a community organizing commander-in-chief. How disrespectful was that? Yeah, yeah. Now, while Palin in a bald cap was feeding us a steaming bowl of liberal epithets, <laughs> he drinks chai, so that means when he sucks in the back of a Volvo, it has that cardamom zing. But in their haste, they forgot to answer the question, would President Bush ever salute the troops with a cup of coffee in his hand? And the answer is no, because his hands were too filled with dog, a Scotty, out of respect. So here we've got two presidents, both sending the United States to war, citing the same legal authorities, both without any seeming exit strategy, and both holding in their hands while saluting our troops. But in their diseased minds, only one did that because he loved America. The other did it because he hated it. Ooh, you win. It's your show now. So what's it gonna be? Because people will tune in. How many train wrecks do we need to see? Before we lose touch of. And we thought this was low. Well, it's bad getting worse. Oh, where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV shows Where'd all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we saw We noted some time ago that Time, Inc. blew a hole in the wall between editorial and advertising with a directive that requires editors to report to the business side of the company. According to an internal document obtained by the website Gawker, they really mean it. The document's a spreadsheet that shows how the company evaluates the writer-editors at SportsIllustrated.com, which Time owns. Evaluations which, the Newspaper Guild says, were used to determine who would be laid off. The editorial employees were scored on a number of measures, including quality of writing and enthusiasm, approach to work. But what's that? 
they're also assigned a number between 2 and 10 based on whether or not they, quote, produce content that is beneficial to advertiser relationship, close quote. After that came to light, a response was issued from a Sports Illustrated spokesperson defending the evaluation, saying it encompassed, quote, all of the natural considerations for digital media, close quote, to which we might say, nature isn't what it used to be. The plant it grow for nourishment to fulfill my need. We can't complain about it cause it come from a seed. Wind go down my throat and so therefore I breathe. Let's talk about corporate influence in the media. And before I do, I am very aware that we're extremely lucky here on HBO. We don't have advertisers. So if I want to say that, for instance, Cadbury cream eggs are filled with dolphin sperm, or... Or that Old Navy clothing makes you look like a tacky murderer. Or, or, that, or that Snickers only satisfies you for about eight minutes, then makes you hate yourself for the rest of the day. I can. I can do all of those things. And why? Well, because of HBO's business model, which no one has been able to adequately explain to me yet. But most other outlets are locked in a constant battle for editorial independence, with it, which is especially problematic when it comes to the news. America has a proud tradition of a free and independent press, but it has always been a fight. Back in the 50s, newscasters like NBC's John Cameron Swayze were introduced like this. Sit back, light up a camel, and be an eyewitness to the happenings that made history in the last 24 hours. The Camel News Caravan presents Today's News Today. Produced for Camel Cigarettes by NBC. Top story this evening. <laughs> Americans' life expectancy is still 45. <laughs> That's camel smooth. Now, exceptions like that aside, it's generally agreed upon in journalism that there should be a wall separating the editorial and the business side of news. It's sometimes referred to as the separation of church and state. Although, I like to think of news and advertising as the separation of guacamole and Twizzlers. <laughs> Separately, they're good, but if you mix them together, somehow you make both of them really gross. But, but, but recently, the integrity of news has become harder to protect, particularly in print. Print is still where most original journalism is done. But since papers moved online, they have struggled financially, mainly because news is like porn. People don't want to pay for it on the internet, even though somewhere in a dimly lit room, Paul Krugman worked very hard to make it. Online! Online! Ah, online! He worked hard. He put his heart and soul into that. Online, print publications have struggled to attract advertisers, partly because traditional banner ads are so ineffective that one study found we only intentionally click on them less than two-tenths of one percent of the time. Which actually sounds about right. Because did you know that if you ever actually click on a banner ad, you literally get taken to a page that reads, Hey, is everything okay? I'm presuming you passed out and hit your head on the keyboard. I'm calling an ambulance right now. The, the publishing industry, though, has responded to this crisis by finding a new way to appeal to advertisers.
Native advertising is basically saying to corporations that want to advertise, we will camouflage your ads to make them look like news stories. That's essentially it. That's essentially it. Are you saying that to sum up your point on native advertising, or are you describing independent journalism? That's essentially it. It's over. We're done here. Even if you've not heard the term native advertising before, you have probably been subjected to it by now. It's when a piece of ostensibly normal content is stamped with tiny disclaimers like uh, this and this, and then contains messages that are often clear endorsements. And if you'll excuse me, I'll just take a break uh, from making this point by enjoying the refreshing taste of Mountain Dew Code Red. Mm. And then it's at this point that you usually realise, oh, this isn't the thing that I was looking for, you're just advertising the most disgusting f drink ever manufactured. <laughs> although, although, I will say it does undeniably taste of red. Uh, <laughs> native advertising, though, has been so lucrative for new media organisations that they've basically built their entire business model around it. 100% of our revenue comes from, from branded content, um, so, so we have a lot of partners who are, who are marketers um, and, and, and major brands. We work with 76 of the top 100 brands now. That's the CEO of BuzzFeed, Jonah Peretti, and his face is like BuzzFeed itself. Su successful, appealing, and yet somehow you want to punch it. Uh, BuzzFeed has created... BuzzFeed has, BuzzFeed has created masterpieces of native advertising, such as 10 Life-Changing Ways to Make Your Day More Efficient, sponsored by GE, and 9 Ways Cleaning Has Become Smarter, sponsored by Swiffer, and 11 Sea Creatures Who Deserve to Die, sponsored by BP. Now, that, that, that last one is a joke, but it's not significantly different from the previous two. Uh, full disclosure. HBO did pay for lists to promote this show around the time that we began, ver very cleverly realising uh, we'd better promote this show, no one is going to give a shit about it. <laughs> but the, the success of this practice has clearly impressed old media such as Time Inc, whose CEO recently created a, a, a native advertising team, and, and he also doesn't see why that might be an issue. As long as it's clearly marked, as long as the consumer knows the difference between what's editorial and what's native, I don't see any problem with it at all. Yeah, but it is a problem, though, because the consumer cannot tell the difference. A recent study showed that less than half of visitors to a news site could distinguish native advertising from actual news. And of course they can't, because it's supposed to blend in. You're like a camouflage manufacturer saying, only an idiot could not tell the difference between that man and foliage. I mean, look, the camouflage clearly states, not foliage on the collar. It's clear. And besides, I'm sure the deer knows the difference between the two things. Deers are so smart. You have to respect deer. And, and if you are wondering how he reconciles this with the line between church and state, well, funny story. Quite frankly, I've changed church and state, as you know. Uh, we took that away and we said the editors are going to now be working for the business side of the equation. But frankly, I think they're happier. They're more excited about it because no longer are we asking ourselves the question, are we violating church and state, whatever that was. Whatever that was. That's like a surgeon saying, hey, I found this squishy thing in there, all bloody and gross, so I removed it, whatever that was. That was the heart. That was what made the whole thing work. You needed that. 
And, and it's not just Time Inc. that's doing this. The Atlantic published some native advertising for the Church of Scientology. The ad is the kind you've probably seen. It's called Sponsored Content, and it's formatted to look like an actual article on their website. And the article lavishly praised Scientology's leader, David Miscavige. Okay, now, for the Atlantic, that is ethically compromising, but for Scientology, that is just plain stupid. They clearly should have gone with a magazine with better access to their key demographics, such as depressed, aspiring actor monthly. <laughs> but even, even the New York Times is now embracing this. They had a recent feature on their website about women in prison, which looked like a serious piece of journalism, but was actually a paid post promoting season two of Orange is the New Black. And here's the thing, as far as native advertising goes, that's about as good as it gets. The reporting is real, and the sponsored branding was minimal. But it is still an ad. Now, it's like hearing the one Katy Perry song that you like. You think, sure, this is the best possible iteration of Katy Perry, but it still feels wrong to be listening to this. <laughs> You're gonna hear me roar. Louder, louder than a lion. It's a good song. It's a good song. There's a 12-year-old girl inside me who is empowered by that song. The, the problem is, the problem is, the problem is sponsors aren't always going to be as benign as Orange is the New Black. Sometimes it's going to be a company like Chevron who recently sponsored a piece in the Times about how our energy needs are changing. And spoiler alert, the notion that they're changing because we f***ed up the earth thanks to companies like Chevron is not the conclusion of the article. <laughs> you might think all of this might seriously damage trust in a news organisation, but a Times advertising executive would like to vigorously refute that. Let me start by vigorously refuting the notion that native advertising has to erode consumer trust or compromise the wall that exists between editorial and advertising. Good native advertising is just not meant to be trickery. It's meant to be publishers sharing its, its storytelling tools with a marketer. Exactly. Exactly. It's not trickery. It's sharing storytelling tools. And that's not bullshit. It's repurposed bovine waste. <laughs> And look, in news, in news, that is seemingly the model now. Ads are baked into content like chocolate chips into a cookie. Except it's actually more like raisins into a cookie because no one f***ing wants them there. And, and, and the point is, think how much it would affect your trust in me as a source if you knew that that last anti-raisin cookie joke was actually brought to you by Chips Ahoy. But... But before we demonise these organisations for selling out, it is worth remembering, this is all at least partially our fault. A press cannot be free and independent if nobody is willing to pay for it. And it seems nobody is going to. In which case, I'd like to make a suggestion. If our news is going to be corrupted, we should at least get something in return. Every time a corporation sneaks advertising into our news and ruins it, our news should be allowed to sneak into their advertising. When you get hot, you get thirsty. And when you get thirsty, there's only one choice. Diet Coke.
The recent Ebola outbreak has killed over 700 people in West Africa. The World Health Organization says they don't yet have it under control, and the situation threatens to become catastrophic. Best of the left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism beacon reader outlets that can be trusted implicitly seem to be all but extinct most of us attempt to follow our favorite trusted writers around wherever they can get printed or limit our reading list to publications we found to be typically reliable but let's face it that is exhausting and none of us are very good at it it's also pretty unsatisfying. We read a lot of the same stuff everywhere and mainly wind up just skimming in an effort to stay current because almost no one will publish in-depth investigative pieces anyways. Enter Beacon Reader, a new concept so needed it's already catching fire. From their website, beaconreader.com, quote, Beacon is for people who tell great stories and uncover important information, unquote. Run by a staff of writers, social media gurus, and tech specialists, Beacon is is reader-friendly. That means more than just an ad-free space. It's easy to scroll, browse, and consume information in a visually appealing format. They're pushing back on every aspect of what they describe as the market's effect on publishing. From their post on the reader-writer relationship, quote, market economics in publishing can't support a lot of the stories that deserve to be told. When everything's crammed into an ad-supported model, plenty of amazing articles, commentary, and reporting get left behind. We firmly believe any solution to this problem rests on three core things, reader, writer, story, unquote. Independent journalists are squeezed out of the medium by an inability to pursue important stories by more than just the unfortunately accepted lack of money issue. When you don't have a publication standing behind you, landing interviews, raising money for travel, or equipment and relationship building with sources is nearly impossible. With Beacon, writers can guarantee the article will get published, bolstering their credibility and making the process of reporting a great story that much easier. And if a major outlet wants to pay to pick it up, the writer, not Beacon, retains the publishing rights and can then sell their work. Featuring in-depth reporting projects on topics shunned and shortened by mainstream and corporate media, Beacon gives readers the chance to decide which works get funded. You can share and highlight the pieces you like, and the top writers get rewarded with a bonus, kind of like a reporting co-op. Recently, the team from Beacon's Ferguson coverage, the first breaking news published by the site, got some notice nationally. They've also picked up their first Pulitzer Prize 
award-winning writer. Other successful projects have included The Genetics of Climate Change, The Net Neutrality Battle, and The Legacy of Mass Incarceration. Beacon is easy to browse by topic with articles on everything from travel to art to law to fracking to national security. As accurately stated on Beacon's info page, you likely pay to subscribe to Netflix and or Spotify, both around 10 bucks a month. The comparable model in journalism was previously $35 for basic New York Times access and $77 for the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, or unlimited New York Times access. And honestly, who wants to read them anyways? For 5 bucks a month at Beacon, you get access to all their content where you can curate your own subscription list, and you can choose to toss in once or as a sustaining donor for projects you're especially excited about. Visit beaconreader.com, poke around, see if you're moved to support any of the work being done there. Also, if you're a writer or are friends with one or two, let them know that the process to apply for space at Beacon is super easy. Share the idea and give them a follow on Facebook and Twitter. We're never going back to the print journalism model. So here's to the innovators looking to create sustainable platforms in the new landscape. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. If supporting independent media and writers matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Beacon Reader via social media so that others in your network can check out the work being done there too. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentaries. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. How well informed are we? I mean, as a society, how well do we really understand the biggest issues of our day? Thomas Jefferson said a properly functioning democracy depends upon an informed electorate, which should be good news for us. We live in the information age. We should have the most properly functioning sublime democracy of all time. Doesn't really feel that way, does it? And, and why not? Who gives us our information anyway? Newscasters do. I recently Googled the word newscasters. Of the top five results, numbers three and four were Wikipedia. Here were the other three. <laughs> number one, top ten, hot newscasters. Number two, top 25 most sexy newscasters of all time. And number five, five newscasters who accidentally went insane on live TV. <laughs> Clearly, we are looking for more than just news from our newscasters. And unfortunately, our challenge is even bigger than hot, sexy, insane newscasters. You've heard of infotainment. We live in the age of argutainment. 
in the age of argutainment, the most condescending, dismissive, antagonistic newscasters. They're the ones who win. They're the ones who get the ratings. It's as though 20 years ago, our news was taken over by the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> and just like with the World Wrestling Federation, we too often forget it's not real. This is just a paid performance. It's like a reality TV parody of what news is supposed to be. Frankly, I, I can't believe no one's come out yet with a reality TV show for us to pick our next most blustery newscaster. Can you just imagine what that show would be like? We face challenges in mis with misinformation in our society. These shows, they do an amazing job of getting us worked up, but they don't generally help us build the deep understanding necessary for us to deal with our very important and complex challenges. Misinformation is this deep-rooted cause of some of the biggest challenges we face. If we were better informed, we would make better decisions about everything. War, economy, environment, you name it. So, about two years ago, I started asking a very simple question. Based on what? Based on what do you believe what you believe? Based on what have you drawn that conclusion? Now, this simple question was supposed to show the people around me that they lacked the facts for the arguments they were making. What I really discovered was how often my own answer was, I don't know, but I'm sure that I'm right. Of that much, I am certain. But what if we as a society could get better at recognizing where we lack the evidence to justify the strength of our convictions? So... For years, I've struggled with this belief that misinformation was one of these deep root causes, and our certainty in our misinformation was even a bigger cause for the challenges that we face. But I didn't know what I could do about it. At the same time, I was very involved in my local school district. I used to go to all of our school board meetings. I got very used to these large, empty auditoriums with five or ten parents in attendance. And then in December of 2012, about 50 miles from where I live, the Newtown tragedy occurred. Our next school board meeting was very different. Over 150 parents packed the auditorium, vehemently urging the school board to adopt new security measures. They wanted every school to have an armed principal and a gun locker. They wanted every classroom to have bulletproof glass and panic buttons. This was not how I thought we should be spending our education dollars. But I didn't just want to stand up and say, I disagree. I wanted to have an answer to the question, based on what? I wanted to have evidence to back up my beliefs. So I sat there punching away on my phone, trying desperately to find some information. Couldn't find what I was looking for. I went home that night and I got on the computer and finally found what I wanted, buried deep in the Center for Disease Control website. And I built this chart to bring to our next meeting. This chart shows for the 10 years leading up to Newtown, the average number of teen deaths in the United States from two causes. Each year, on average, 17 kids die from school shootings. This is tragic. At the same time, over 1,800 kids die every year from suicide. It seems to me if we really care about the, the health, the well-being, the safety, and the lives of our kids, we would invest our money in mental health and suicide prevention especially when you take into consideration the fact that 
mental imbalance, including depression and suicidal thinking, is one of the leading causes of mass shootings. So by seeking to save these 1,800 lives, we might actually give ourselves the best possible chance of saving the other 17. Now, I was very grateful that my school chose not to invest our education dollars in bulletproof glass. But I was frustrated that there wasn't an easier way to find and share this kind of information. That was my true aha moment. That was the moment where I was finally able to connect the dots between this belief that misinformation and our confidence in our misinformation was this deep root cause of the challenges in our society with an action that I could take that might just help move us in a positive direction. So in March of 2013, I partnered with Steve Ostermiller to create SavvyRoo.com. SavvyRoo is a social media website for sharing any kind of visual data, charts, graphs, maps, infographics. It's a place to make it as easy to find and share facts as we currently find it easy to share restaurants or photographs. The kangaroo with its big feet is symbolic of being connected to the real world. And this is really what we want for, for all of us to be more grounded in reality, to find less rhetoric and more facts. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that a data visual can't misinform, but we're trying to improve the ratio of facts to rhetoric, to clear away the bluster and give all of us a place to share and discuss and debate the facts as we see them. Now every morning I wake up and this is my breakfast. I drink my coffee and I look at the charts from the people and the organizations that I follow. Now if you're anything like me and you're into politics or sports or wellness, this is great. All of a sudden you get all of this data to back up your beliefs. I mean, come on now. Raise your hand if you love being right. Yeah, about 80% of this room is honest. <laughs> the rest of you are liars. D didn't Dr. Warren just talk to all of you about being liars? <laughs> being right feels awesome. Yeah, we all love that. But what's shocked me in this is discovering that what feels even better is finding out where I'm wrong or where the world is more complicated than I originally thought. I love the charts that flip my thinking on something. See, as much as I want to be right all the time, I know that I'm not, <laughs> clearly, obviously. In fact, I know that I believe things that are fundamentally, factually incorrect, just totally wrong. I just don't know which of my beliefs those are. <laughs> Think about that. Which of your beliefs are fundamentally, factually incorrect? You can't answer that question, can you? I mean, there is an answer, but you don't know what it is. And because of argutainment and confirmation bias and filter bubbles, we are actually getting further and further away from discovering the answer. We are becoming both more misinformed and more convinced of our misguided beliefs than ever before. If we are going to flip the switch on our own misguided thinking, we are going to need to consume less rhetoric and more facts to tamp down the emotions that we experience, to give ourselves any hope of pushing back that uncertainty and being open to new information. Consider this. This is from a Pew Research Center study of how divisive different characteristics are in our society. The higher the score, the more divisive the characteristic. 
1987, you can see that people of different races viewed the world relatively differently, as did people of different educational experiences, less so for income, religion, and gender. In 2012, you see some minor adjustments, but no major changes. But there are a couple of missing bars. Look at what happened. A middle-of-the-road variable in 1987 becomes far and away the most divisive characteristic we have in our society. How could that be? What is that variable? Politics. Political party has become by far the most divisive characteristic of our time. And every vitriolic op-ed posted to Facebook, every newscaster rant, every politician who brands the opposition as an enemy fuels this fire. We are being taught to care more about winning the debate than we do about creating informed discussion, to value the argutainment more than we value the issues themselves. Now, I would love to suggest that we ban argutainment altogether. If we were smart, we would. But I'm not sure we can. It's, it's like a guilty pleasure. It's too much fun for us to get rid of. But if argutainment is like the carbs of our news diet, we need a protein fix. You know, something that gives us a straight shot of facts to balance that out. Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. It seems we live in a world where the opposite is true. We are being taught to value news that is sensational, frightening, and divisive, no matter how shallow or empty those claims may be. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can retrain ourselves and our society to be more uncertain, to let go of our need for certainty, and to see through the argutainment. Together, let's become that countervailing force. Let's ask the question based on what and encourage more evidence-based discussion and debate. And let's adjust our news diet. Let's seek out some sources of news that enable us to consume less rhetoric and more facts. And if we do these things, and if we spread them to others, we can move past this age of argutainment. We can get informed in a way that actually brings us together in the way we view the world, in how we see one another, and how we solve our biggest challenges. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. We're foregoing voicemails for this episode, but they'll definitely be coming back soon. Uh, we've got some great messages lined up. And if you would like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So we're, we're skipping voicemails today because there's something I want to bring your attention to, which is the concept of conservative comedy. And, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, whatever the redneck comedy tour or whatever they were called. This is like the daily show. If it was conservative, that, that style of comedy. And I, I, I want to bring your attention to it because I, f- I feel like many people won't even know that this is a thing that exists. It, it, I mean, it barely exists. 
And I mean, especially young listeners who are sort of like getting into politics or, you know, they just weren't paying attention seven years ago might have missed out on the glory that was the Fox News Channel attempt at making a daily show style show with a conservative slant. It was called very cleverly titled The Half Hour News Hour. And, you know, if, if you've never heard it before, then you're in for a treat. And if you did hear about it at the time, then this will be like political nostalgia for you. So just to give you a taste of what I'm talking about, have a listen to this. Chief Alinawek will no longer appear on the sidelines of the University of Illinois football games because his character is considered outdated and demeaning to Native Americans. The school's new athletic mascot will be a blackjack dealer. <laughs> So I am certainly not the first to say it, but I will certainly chime in in agreement that I sure am glad that these political satirists are using their humor to take aim right at an oppressed group like the Native Americans and knock them down a peg because they have had it way too good for way too long. You know, and, and it gets to the core of what the problem with a whole lot of conservative comedy is, is that they seem to really struggle finding a good target for their humor. But more on that in a minute. I want to actually introduce you to the new attempt at this type of a show. I mean, the the Fox News attempt, the half-hour news hour, came and went pretty quickly. It was terrible. So, you know, it, it's long gone, and it's been a while since anyone's really tried this. And so now a new show has popped up, and in classic conservative fashion, you will not be surprised to hear that the way it's being launched is by some Texas millionaire or billionaire just deciding he wants for there to be a conservative version of The Daily Show. So he's just funding it out of his own pocket because it's not like anyone would make a show like this happen on Kickstarter or anything. Uh, so, you know, Millionaire is uh, is funding this new show, and I heard about it on the CBC radio show Q on Q the podcast. And so they interview both the host of this new show and this woman, uh, Alison Dagnus, who wrote the book, a conservative walks into a bar, the politics of political humor. And the book basically tries to explain why conservatism is incompatible with comedy, which is a pretty interesting topic, I think. So she was asked if she thought that this new show that they're making has a chance of succeeding. It's been tried before, but I think that Mr. Loftus is doing it in a different way. And I think that this has some real potential because the half hour news hour that was on Fox really tried to be a conservative daily show. And they started with the conservative part first and the funny second. And to hear Mr. Loftus describe his show, and, and I saw the pilot, um, I think he's he's right. He's starting with the funny, uh, which means he's going to get to the funny more easily than if he starts with the conservative and lands at the funny. So I heard that and I had a little bit of hope. I thought, hey, maybe she's right. Maybe he'll do something different and he'll find the magic formula for how to be a funny conservative. And that'll be really interesting. I, I would totally check that out. But then, you know, as I said, in that same show on Cue the Podcast, I also heard an interview with the host himself. And there was this passage, which sounded pretty good for a while until it got troubling at the end. What do you think the biggest challenge will be with this show? Right now, uh, the show is to, to keep it timely yet evergreen. 
I want to. I really want to do about the the big ideas. It's so easy to you see something happens in the news, like okay, uh, you know, Obama wore a tan suit and everybody was mad about the suit, and but you want to write a bunch of tan suit jokes. Now, after hearing that, I was a little bit nervous again in his taste in comedy targets. I thought he really didn't know what he was talking about potentially, because maybe you thought the same thing I did. Really. You were excited about the tan suit thing? Like, you wanted to make tan suit jokes, of, of all things? Now, I mean, if you want to poke fun at the whole situation and satirize it, it's ripe for satire. But clearly, you have to aim your jokes at the media circus that sprang up around it because it's an absurd topic that a lot of people took seriously. So you got to poke fun at those people. And, I mean, he didn't end up writing any Tansu jokes. He went on to say that, you know, he tries to keep the show timely and so he, he couldn't do those jokes. But, like, he sounded like he wanted to sort of pile on and kind of take the tan suit thing seriously and make jokes at the expense of a tan suit, which is really not funny. Uh, I, I just don't see the angle myself. Anyways, clearly I had to go check out the show. So I ended up watching uh, episode four. It was the, the one at the top of the page. So I, I uh, started listening and it was posted September 27th, 2014, just to be clear, it's not an old uh, episode or anything. And he starts out his opening monologue talking about Michael Moore, including his early film career, making jokes about bowling for Columbine, which came out 12 years ago. And and I, of course, realized, wasn't he just talking about how he wanted to keep the show timely? That is a bizarre choice for a target. Again, but I guess Michael Moore is like a big conservative boogeyman, even though in actual progressive circles, he's sort of irrelevant. Like, I listen to... Uh, you know, a metric shit ton of progressive media. And I cannot remember the last time I heard Michael Moore mentioned, you know, I mean, I think it was like four or five years ago when he made Sicko there is like the last time I remember. Um, maybe, uh, uh, the capitalism movie was more recent than that, but still like that was several years ago. So anyways, <laughs> the episode goes on and uh, I'll play this bit for you. He, he puts up a picture of, Elizabeth Warren. You're not allowed to lie about being a Native American when it suits your political needs. Right? This gal right here, Elizabeth Warren, has been passing herself off as a Native American for a long time. And they finally look into it, and guess what? She's not part Indian at all. It's a big lie. And she still gets elected senator of Massachusetts. Uh, I guess what happened was her grandmother told her she might be part Indian and she just ran with it. She never checked. So the implication here is clear that, you know, lying is wrong. And, but also it's, it's totally uncool to appropriate, you know, a culture that doesn't belong to you. So, you know, I was sort of surprised. Like, all right, so he's like kind of sticking up for the Native Americans. Good for him. And then he continued. Warren, she's not backing down. Even after everybody found out, they asked her about what Hillary Clinton might be like as a candidate. And and, uh, Elizabeth said, woman with giant pantsuits speak with forked tongue. Take heap big wampum from political action committees. Can't keep husband away from buffalo size intern. Tatunka. Tatunka. Look like girl live in trailer park near reservation. Not quality date. 
Now, if you're like a comedy connoisseur, what you might say is, now, wait, wait, wait. Remember, he was putting those words into Elizabeth Warren's mouth. So he wasn't technically targeting Native Americans. He was targeting Elizabeth Warren by suggesting that she would say something as incredibly offensive as that. Yeah, you could say that. But if you were to say that, he would actually prove you wrong in his very next sentence. I hope a real Native American puts a curse on Elizabeth Warren. You know, make sleeve on her jacket way too short. She stand at podium, look like idiot. Everyone see fish belly white arms. <laughs> yeah, you see, he didn't put the words into anyone else's mouth that time. He just wanted to do what he thinks is a funny impression of Native Americans again. Because I guess if we've learned anything tonight, it's that conservative comedians love shitting on the Native Americans for reasons that continue to go unexplained. But speaking of shitting on the people most oppressed in our uh, society, I have one more clip for you. This, this is the joke that comes right after what I just played. He puts a picture up on the screen of a homeless man with a will work for food sign. Will work for food. Hmm. Me too. I'm pretty sure that's what we're all doing. Okay. Right? That's what you should do when you're cruising down the highway and you stop. You're like, yeah, me too. Mine's working out great. They gave me a car. Now that is a biting satire. I love it. And he's right. Because it's not enough to just be much, much better off than someone. You really do need to yell at them and rub it in their face. Because otherwise, how's the homeless guy going to know how much disdain you have for them as a human being, even though they've never done anything to you? You know, if the guy's workshopping this joke, I, the one note I might give is, why stop at yelling, though? I mean, why not get out of your car and urinate on the homeless guy? I mean, that's how you really show who's dumb. And it's much funnier, I think. Anyways, I have some final thoughts on why conservatism is incompatible with humor, uh, but I will let the author go first as that question was posed to her. What is it about the delivery of most right-wing jokes that doesn't allow humor to flourish on a popular level? Well, I think that a lot of the time when anger gets in the way, it's really tough to make a joke out of something that's angry. And, and I, I interviewed several conservative political comedians who said, you know, in this politically correct environment, it's tough to make jokes about African Americans, about women. And I was thinking, okay, maybe you're right. It might be tough, but tell me what's funny about being African American or being a woman. And if you could come up with something that's funny, then that's not necessarily going to be a problem. But if you're just coming up with somebody's a woman, waka waka, you know, that's not particularly good. My thoughts are very much along the same line, so I'll just piggyback on that answer that I think the problem that conservative comedians run into is that they don't see the difference between a topic and a target. They s complain like they can't make jokes about black people or women, or they would probably throw in Native Americans as well. But what they're not realizing is that the topic is perfectly fine, as, as, you know, she was just describing. The topic is not off limits. If you make a joke that's actually funny, then that's fine. But it's when you target those people and sort of make the joke be about their oppression that they experience in real life. And, you know, let's face that most conservative comedians are like pretty privileged 
you know, white dudes. So you're really putting yourself in that position of like the, you know, the beefy guy on the beach kicking sand into the eyes of the nerd. Like that's not comedy. That's bullying. So I find this stuff endlessly fascinating, like a train wreck and just wanted to share it with you. That's going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Everyone can support the show by, of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained we can't see past our own sad stories and wonder why we're missing we can't see past our own sad stories and Stories and forget who it is with